City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, play script, direct. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located right in the heart of Times Square, 42nd Street, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to present the very best that is in theatre and the magic of theatre. The American Theatre Wing has been doing what it's doing for a long, long time, and perhaps it is best known for its Tony Awards. And these awards are coveted year after year. They're a very high and prestigious award. They are given not for the biggest gross at the box office or the best reviews, but they are given for those that have achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of theater. And although we are justly proud of them, they are but one of the things that the wing is proud of. Behind the Tony Awards stands a year-round organization. We have hospital shows that go into hospitals and uh, to nursing homes and to aid centers. And youngsters alike from the cabaret world and people from the various shows that are on Broadway come and entertain for us and, and give some degree of, of magic for a few minutes or a half hour or 45 minutes to the people that are there. And then we have Saturday Theater for Children program. And that's exactly what it says. On Saturday mornings, youngsters line up in their own neighborhoods to go to their own schools and to watch a performance, a professional performance on Saturday mornings. And teachers and parents alike contribute their services so that it becomes a community effort, which is really the basis of the American Theatre Wing. We serve the theatre through the community. One step from Saturday Theatre is our new program, which is Introduction to Broadway. And that is done in cooperation with the Board of Education, High School Division, and the wonderful generosity of the producers who have given the wing tickets at a minimal price so that we can give them to the students and the students themselves pay individually for a ticket and they come by themselves from the five boroughs of New York to see a Broadway play. It is exciting for them. It's as exciting for us to see future Broadway playgoers. And then there are these seminars. And the seminars are what we like to feel are a very important educational tooling aid. They come out of the Wings School, and from that come seminars on working in the theater from the viewpoint of the performer, the playwright director, and the producer. Today's 
seminar is on the playwright and the director. This is the important ingredients, the two ingredients that take the words and present them to you with the director so that the whole thing comes together for the audience. I'm not going to spend any more time so we can get on with the wonderful panel that we have being chaired by Jean Dalrymple, who is an author, was a director, is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and George White, who is president of the O'Neill Center and is a director as well. I don't know whether he's a producer as well, but I know that George wears almost as many hats as Jean does. So <laughs> let me turn this over to George right away. Thank you very much. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you for coming. Do you begin? Do you, do you oh, I begin? Well, at the head of my line is a very gifted woman. She's not on the stage. She's not a writer. She's not a director. She's a businesswoman. And she is now the vice president. I was going to say president, and I wish I could, <laughs> at, at International Creative Management. But before that, she was... Uh, with HBO and Reeves Entertainment, where she got a great deal of her technique for doing the work she does now. Next to her is an old friend, Charles Grodin, and I'm sure you've all seen him on TV a lot, especially with Johnny Carson. Known to uh, most of us as an actor, Mr. Grodin actually spends most of his time writing. He has written for TV and film as well as theater, including Roundabout's production of The Price of Fame. His new play, One of the All-Time Greats, is now at the Vineyard Theater. Mr. Grodin. And uh, next to him is John Robin Bates. This young playwright has not one but two hit plays running off Broadway. The Substance of Fire, which by the way is marvelous, at the Lincoln Center's Mitzi Newhouse Theater, and The End of the Day at Playwrights Horizon, Mr. Bates. And right next to me is one of my own favorites, Ken Ludwig. He's a favorite because he wrote Lend Me a Tenor, which I think is one of the funniest plays I ever saw, and a, a farce equal to anything Faye Du could do. He's right up there with the greats, Mr. Ludwig. Uh, on my far right is uh, Tony Roberts. Uh, who is an actor, singer, dancer, and uh, is making his uh, <laughs> debut, we'll talk about that later, uh, and making his debut as uh, a director at the Vineyard Theater and is directing uh, Charles Grodin's uh, One of the All-Time Greats, which is also uh, describes Mr. Roberts. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, next to uh, Tony is... Uh, a uh, 
colleague of mine from the land of steady habits in Connecticut, uh, the artistic director of the Hartford Stage Company, uh, the, uh, the first uh, gentleman to direct uh, a, a the former Soviet now uh, theater company uh, in an O'Neill play, actually, is Mr. Mark Lemos, who is currently uh, directing uh, Robin Bates's The End of the Day, Mark Lemos. And on my immediate right, uh, Susan Stroman, uh, who uh, really shot into fame by doing uh, the uh, As the World Goes Round, but is, uh, went even farther, if that's possible, uh, being the choreographer of the current smash hit, Crazy for You, Susan Stroman. <laughs> Well, who wants to tell us how they got started in this so-called business of ours? How about you? Me? You want yeah. To <laughs> well, I, I got lucky uh, because uh, I, the last time I directed anything was back in uh, college. And uh, I had a phone call from Charles Grodin a couple of years ago, thanks to a mutual friend of ours, um, Mr. Grodin was told that uh, I might have an instinct for directing. Um, and uh, he took that on faith and asked me to direct his play. And we had some meetings. This was, uh, I guess, seven or eight years ago. And uh, for one reason or another, we all went our separate ways and it didn't happen. But a few months ago, he called again and said the play was being done at the Vineyard and would I like to be involved and direct it? Mm -hmm. And uh, I would have been a fool to say no but it succeeded uh, beyond my wildest dreams, and uh, that's how I got it. Is that your first? It is my first uh, really? professional directing job. The entire fee went to the directors and choreographers <laughs> union, but uh, <laughs> hoping there'll be some profit down the road. <laughs> Mr. Grodin, do you have anything to say about that? Well, I, I deny everything he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, we, we actually met uh, about uh, four years ago. We had known each other, and uh, the play was about to be done, uh, co-produced by the Theater Guild about four years ago, and then uh, it wasn't. Uh, and then it was going to be done, um, <clears throat> we were going to do it at the Public Theater about three years ago, and uh, I met with Joe Papp, and... Uh, and he liked it, and he said, "Why don't uh, I said, why don't I read it to you in the office? I often uh, go to people's houses if I have to, and uh, <laughs> get them before they're fully awake and say, listen to this. <laughs> anyway, I went down and I said, I'll read it to you. And then once I had Joe in his office, I said, you know, there's ten characters here. How about you reading my wife? <laughs> so Joe Papp read my wife. <laughs> the role that Renee Taylor is currently playing, and uh, and then Joe's wife. Uh, Gail and uh, his casting director, and now the associate director of the public, Rosemary Tischler, were the, were the audience. And uh, they liked it, and then Joe said he was going to do it, and then we did a, uh, uh, he said, how about doing a, a big reading? Why don't you cast it and get uh, 10 actors, and let's, we'll get an audience, and we'll learn about the play. And I said, well, okay, that's, that's, that's something of a job to do something like that. Are we doing the play? Oh, no, we're doing it. We're just going to learn more by by doing this. So I did, and, uh, and we spent a little time on it, and we had a hundred people there in the audience of the public, and it just went, 
it went spectacularly well and we and Joe said to come to my office the next day and talk and I assumed that what we were going to be talking about is when we were going to do the play at the public and uh, I, I'm sitting with him and I I can't quite follow what he's saying, but it's not, we're going to do the play. Uh, he, had, he had recently uh, opened two plays. Uh, one was an adaptation of Genesis, and another was a play with a lot of time jumps that the audience and critics had difficulty following, whether they were in the present, the past, or the future. And he had gotten attacked unusually viciously by the critics. And this was all said in prelude to telling me why he couldn't do one of the all-time greats. And the reason was that the presentation, the reading, had gone so well that if he did something that was that full-out entertaining at the public theater, as he put it, it would look like he was uh, just taking his lead from the critics and not doing the type of thing he wanted to do. So it was the first time in my life I'd ever done anything that was, that was not put on that, because it was so successful. <laughs> I thought I'd heard everything. And then uh, it took about a, a few years before we, we uh, came up with the Vineyard Theater, and then just prior... Uh, once, once I knew uh, we had a production there, uh, I, uh, I called Tony and, uh, and I said, uh, would you like to direct one of the all-time greats? And he said, I'd love to. Well, that's a conversation for those of us working the theater. You don't get responses like that. You don't ask a direct question to get an answer. The best you get is, uh, let me read it again. Let me, but he just flat out said, I'd love to. And I said, well, that's, that's wonderful. And uh, I'd never seen him direct, but I, I'd spoken to him, and, and he sounded more like a director to me than just about any director I'd ever worked with. Yeah. <laughs> he said things, uh, you know, he said, he said things that, that sound like stagecraft type things, and focus, and event, and arc, and words like that. And I, I, really, <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, it was, uh, I, I knew it was a funny play, and I knew that, and he saw it, he actually, the, it, I think one of Tony's he had two major contributions to this. One, he argued with me. Well, I said, don't, don't count on this thing being touching. Uh, it would like to be, but I don't think it is. I think you'd better just keep this thing you know, snapping along. Don't wait for the audience to... And he said, I really disagree with you. I think there's a lot more substance. I said, well, I intended that, but I don't think that's what the audience... Re I think the audience responds to the comedy. He says, well, I think you're wrong. I said, well go ahead, but if you slow down and, you know, nobody gets a tear in their eye, let's just, like, gear up again and, and keep running. And, and, and he was absolutely right. I was completely uh, startled to, to see that uh, come the second act of this play, what is, a, what is essentially a fast-moving comedy suddenly gets uh, moving, thanks to, thanks really to Tony pulling that out uh, of the play. Also, he took a play that's set in the back room of a Chinese restaurant, <laughs> which I, I had originally directed a, a production of this 20 years ago, an early version of this play uh, that I directed with Alan Arkin starring. And, and uh, I must say, uh, he took a play that's set in, that was primarily set around a table, and he turned it into, like, they say it's a, that he's a great comic hand, that it's a masterful piece of staging. Well, it really is. I mean, he took a back room of a Chinese restaurant and turned it into a, a meeting room, and it's a, the most organic uh, staging because everybody is moving around. It's a three-quarter theater, the vineyard, and, uh, I, you know, I really think we owe the, uh, the wonderful success of this play, you know, largely to Tony Roberts, so that's what I have to add. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else. I can only lose. <laughs> Mark, uh, it was, since we're talking about directors uh, and, and arcs and things like that, um, <laughs> tell us about your uh, 
background and how uh, I, I know a certain amount about it, but share that with us. I mean, coming via Minneapolis to Hartford and, well, it's and also working now. It's interesting that we're all performers initially, right? I mean, you, you were as well, Susan. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think they make the best directors somehow. <laughs> um, even though we talk about arcs and things. I don't know. I, I work mostly with dead writers, so this is a whole new. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's a little bit. Robbie was occasionally dead, but but then sometimes alive. Um, and uh, it's 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 different because the living writers, you know, tell you what they think about things. But it's also great because you can actually say what what does this mean. But you can never do to a dead writer. You just you just stage something <laughs> just, wonderful. Just guess. Um, but uh, I started as an actor at the Guthrie, and after a couple seasons there, uh, the artistic director Michael Langham said, "Why don't you direct?" <laughs> and um, so I started directing a bit, and then uh, suddenly just uh, never had time to act anymore. Just kept directing. So be careful because they, you mm -hmm. know, all of a sudden they hear you direct, and it's it changes your life somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and since then have mostly been interested in plays uh, written 400 to 1,000 years ago and have worked on those, um, occasionally doing a new play. Um, and now in my old age, I'm sort of more interested in doing, in doing work with living writers and, and new work. I like the, I like the um, collaboration. It's sort of like directing opera. You, you're, you're only half responsible. The conductor in the pit is responsible for a lot as well. And, um, I don't know, at 46, I'm feeling irresponsible. <laughs> um, it's nice, though, I mean, it is a partnership with a, with a, with a playwright, and a very delicate one, um, because you are, well, in, in the case of The End of the Day, I mean, there was, there was a, a marvelous play there, and, and it was a question of finding out where it needed to, to blossom into, I guess you would say, um, which which direction Robbie felt it ought to go. And it was a fascinating process of asking questions and, and seeking answers, uh, not too pushily, and then, and then finding things through the, the company of actors as well. Um, a very careful collaboration, I would say, in, in, in not, not getting in each other's rice bowl too much. You can, you can be, it can be a devastating experience for either partner with a new play because uh, uh, the playwright, the playwright really is very vulnerable in giving up absolutely everything he or she, you know, has 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 lived with in a very private moment, which is the writing of the play. Um, starts to to let the director into that process, and so suddenly there are two people in the room where there used to be just one, and then the actors come into that process, and and um, everyone needs to be there needs to be sort of a lot of grace in the. In the in the experience, especially with a writer as 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 gifted as Robbie, where you you sense or I sensed at any rate the play was saying certain things. Sometimes I was wrong. Sometimes he was unsure about what exactly he wanted, how he wanted to say what he felt, and and uh, it was a question of sort of jockeying back and forth. Whereas with a with a dead playwright, um, <laughs> you well. <laughs> It's it's more it's more clairvoyant in a funny way. I mean, you 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 start to find yourself getting into the sort of persona of that writer, the age the writer lived in, the what that writer was speaking to somehow. And it's not unlike working with a living writer, because by the time you go into rehearsal with the actors, the writer is is alive and mm -hmm. and in the room, and you're then honoring 
him in those cases. Older writers were men, um, dead writers were men. So you're, you know, and then you're, you're trying to see, you're trying to be led by something that begins to grow in front of you. The play begins to sort of take on its life in the company of the actors and what have you, the designers, etc. And then it leads you, you know, very similar to this in a sense. The scary moments when you're, when you're both, when it's a partnership like this, um, if I can presume to call it that, uh, is that, is that it has to be a bit more careful because the play isn't as sure of itself as, as the Duchess of Malfi or, or the Comedy of Errors or the Agamemnon or what have you. It's, it's still about to be as sure of itself as it wants to be. And it's sometimes difficult, we were just talking, to know sort of when you need to step back and let it be what it is without getting too proprietary about it. Do you have anything to say about that? Oh, me? Mm. No, I... I like he said, I deny everything. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's a very accurate representation of the delicacy of, of, the, uh, of the endeavor. Um, I, I think that it's, it becomes very much a director's event at a certain point. And uh, I like to step back um, and watch it come alive. And, and um, I, I tend to do that. Um, and kind of, I, I, I kind of tend to recess and I, I think it's, uh, I try not to be a spoil sport in rehearsal. If I know something, I, I, I take my cue from, from an old psychiatrist I once had who always knew the answers but never told me. And I just sit back <laughs> and let them discover. Charles, you know, <laughs> you know the answers. What do you think of all this? All of this? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the first thing I think is I like my mother to be brought up to the first row so she can hear what we're saying. So maybe at the break, well, that's the main thing I'm thinking. Of. Um, stepping back or getting in as a playwright, uh, yes, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's having been a director, I know what it's like to have people whispering in your ear. So I, uh, I didn't come and whisper in Tony's ear. I. Uh, I woke him at night from his sleep. <laughs> uh, no, I think that you do, you do, and we had a very. Uh, this is Tony's uh, first uh, directorial right. thing, so he doesn't know possibly how smooth this was. We had a very very smooth collaboration. Uh, uh, it couldn't have gone any better. It, it varies in different situations. Uh, I've had I've had things that I've directed where two writers, one had this ear and one had this ear, and. Uh, and they were saying different things um, at the same time. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think you turn it over to the director. And my, my feeling with Tony was I only really had something to say if I thought uh, something was disturbing. But I would never say, oh, I would like it better if, if, if she were sitting or I don't get into that yeah. kind of thing. You must give him because he's putting in the time sure. and the effort. And uh, at this particular venue, uh, it's costing him money to be there. So he's going to have uh, all the support from me. I want to get to me. Ken and Susan That's on this to see how they feel about what's happening. Well, the what's, how, how does a choreographer work with a book writer? How different are you than in, in directing? I don't think there's any difference at all, actually. We work very closely. The collaboration in Crazy Fear was very strong between Mike Ackman, the director, and Ken and myself and Robin Wagner and uh, Paul Gimignani and Peter Howard, our dance arranger. But the, uh, there were so many more people to collaborate with, uh, which is ultimately more difficult than just a play. Um, 
we were lucky that everyone got along and everyone sort of put egos aside. And uh, Mike Ockren, I feel, was a very strong leader in the sense that communications were always open and no page went turned without every department knowing what was happening on that page. So I think that's why one of the reasons Crazy For You is being touted as being seamless. You don't really see where one person's work starts and the other person's begins. Mm -hmm. And for Canemy, one of the things, uh, the songs were interpolated. We didn't have a live composer to say, could you change this lyric for us? <laughs> we didn't have Candor Neb to go to or anybody, so we had the song. Uh, we were lucky enough to, I believe there are only about four songs from the original Girl Crazy. All the other songs are from Shall We Dance and Dams in Distress. We were able to pull from a, a huge source of Gershwin songs, but still, you had that song and you couldn't change the lyric. So all the numbers had to be able to push the plot forward, so they had to be choreographed in such a way to push the plot forward. I needed to know where Ken was going with the scene, before the number and after the number, and I needed to know where Mike wanted to direct it before the number and the ap after the number. So then I could get the two scenes to meet through the song. None of the um, numbers are presentational in a, in a sense that they do the scene and they keep doing the number. They don't do the scene and then turn downstage and sing. So, uh, so therefore, our collaboration had to be very strong to know exactly what everyone was thinking. And we had to be open to different opinions, everyone's opinion. And uh, really, to take the music and develop the music was one of the most important things in helping to tell the story that Kim wanted to tell. For example, in Shall We Dance, you would just be handed the sheet music of Colony of Shall We Dance, just that melody. And then Peter Howard and my dance ranger, we would have to develop it to make sure that we told the story of Bobby wanting her to dance, she doesn't want to dance, oh, she falls in love with him, and by the end she kisses him. So then Ken can take the scene after that. He doesn't have to write about anything about, and now you come over and kiss me, because we've already done it in the dance. So then he can take the scene further. So our collaboration was very strong, and I think we were, we were lucky that everyone got along so well, because it, it would be that, you know, seven people would have to collaborate <coughs> instead of just two or three. Did she ever say things in the dance that you wish you could have said in the writing and then had to give up? Or? This is in how that evolved. Well, that's know. interesting. It, it, it was, it was a, just a revelation to me to work on a musical for the first time, a real musical. I'd done another show called Sullivan and Gilbert that had music in it, but to work on a real full-blooded musical, uh, having just written plays before that, <coughs> where the collaboration was with the director. Pretty much, that was it. Sure, the designers were important, but, and I've been very blessed, and I've worked with David Gilmore and Jerry Zaxel and Lemmy Tenor and wonderful people, and I'd always had very good experiences. Now, here I was in the middle of a musical and went away and wrote this book to a musical before I'd met Susan uh, and before we knew who was gonna, else was going to be in, involved on the artistic side and learned over the course of the year we worked on this show, in really 1991, from beginning to end, was this show. Um, what a different, completely different circumstance it is to work in a musical because you have so many departments involved and just blessed with the quality of the people involved. Susan and Mike and Paul Gemignani, Peter Howard, who's here in the front row of the audience, is our dance arranger, the best in the business. And here I was, never having written a musical, trying to get Gershwin songs to sort of tell the story. So as I wrote the story, I would put in, okay, they get to know each other, they, they learn to... Um, Bobby and Polly, the protagonists, 
uh, uh, fall in love in the course of a song, Shall We Dance, which I picked out of the canon of Gershwin songs that the Gershwin estate said, use anything you want from any of the Gershwin songs. Um, but little did I know what Susan would do with it, which is that, in a sense, I, I tried to make them fall in love in the scene work, to answer your question, and then the, thinking that the dance would, in a way, cap it off or embellish that. But what happened was that through Susan's extraordinary choreography, they fell in love in the course of the dance. So then what I found out was that I could finish the scene in a different way, that they were still antagonists. This song and the music and the choreography brings them together over the course of, in fact, sort of two numbers put together, Could You Use Me from the original Girl Crazy and Shall We Dance from the, the, the film Shall We Dance. And by the end of that number, he kisses her. She's in, in floating in ether, an ether of love, and, uh, and, and we're there, so that I could cut back and use the scene time to really tell the story as best I wanted to, keep it moving, start pointing to the next song, uh, make the audience hopefully laugh, learn to love these people, and found out the, uh, you know, the most important part of the process was making the audience really care about these people, mm -hmm. and then everything else would take care of itself. Um, I mean, where do you come from? I come from, well, originally York, Pennsylvania, in the Dutch, Amish Dutch country. Right, and how, how, what, what are the steps that brought you to this knowledge of what you had to do in order to work with Susan and how to, I mean, <laughs> well, let me attend it was one thing, but here you now come to this, which is quite different. Well, it's... Uh, uh, bring me up to lend me a tenor. Well, it, it was all I ever wanted to do since I was this high was to be in the theater. I mean, I think that's pro I don't know if that's true of all of us here, but I would be surprised if it's not. I mean, you either... People ask me sometimes, well, did you go to school and take playwriting courses? And the answer is no. Um, uh, I never, all I did was read plays and see plays and drink them in and care about them and think about them. And it was my life since I was six years old. It's all I wanted to do was be in the theater. So I know, you know, all the plays, uh, those plays that uh, Mark was talking about a thousand years to, to now. And that, and musicals and loved musicals. and. That familiarity with these plays, I think, is the way you you learn to do it. So, so that that um, uh, that, in a sense, that's where the the expertise, though I'm, hate, I'm scared I to call it that. One of the things on, on, that's been brought out so very clearly here is that you all have a knowledge in all the various areas of the theater, though you're all very young, and this is so important. We have tended to see instant directors or instant playwrights, instant actors. But you've all brought from an actor to a playwright to a director to a dancer knowledge that you've accumulated along the way. And, and one of the things that is so important is that you know what everybody else's job is, really, and what everyone else can do in order to either to give direction or to play. This but, has been brought out here very the, clearly. The person that traffic cops all of this is, uh, <laughs> is Vicki. Perhaps you yeah. can talk about how uh, coming out of Harvard, uh, you know, and what, what happened then? I know Reeves and, and, and HBO, well, but I mean, you didn't just arrive I to, there. I went to law school. Well, <laughs> that's, I think Ken is a, a lawyer too, right? Went to law school so well. there's, there's something there. Lawyers and actors are no, no, I, I just left it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, actually, I started out as a corporate lawyer, but I'd grown up in the theater. Both, both of my parents were in the business. And I came to the realization that to be a good business lawyer, you had to care about the business. 
and the only one I cared about was the business there's no business like. Uh, <laughs> so I eventually ended up as Vice President of Business Affairs at ICM and it's my job to make the deals, the business arrangements that underlie what these artists do. Uh, and I consider that a great privilege. How does that happen? Did you, do you only work with the artists that were in the stable of ICM or does possibly if, if Mr. Groden has, is not an ICM but Ken is, how does that work out when you, when you have to do work on a contract? Uh, well, right, are rights take, included in that? Let's take an example. Um, if we represent a playwright, mm -hmm. we would then negotiate the arrangement between the playwright and the producer. Um, there also will sometimes be a collaboration agreement between a playwright and a director. Um, although that's fairly unusual. Usually both the playwright and the director will contract with the producer. But there are situations where the director gets involved at a very early stage of the collaboration, actually contributes to the play, and may actually participate in the author's subsidiary rights mm -hmm. uh, by contract. And that's the kind of thing, again, that we would negotiate. Is that happening more and more? Um, Less and less. Yeah, less, yeah, I think Charles is right. Less, less and less. Um, I know it's interesting. It's one of the things that <laughs> the, the union that ate Tony's fee <laughs> is, is has been interested in making having, you know, having directors share in subsidiary rights uh, as part of the basic minimum agreement. And I personally don't see that that's going to happen. I think that's uh, for a director to share in subsidiary rights it's a function of what he's contributed to the play and who the director is and who the playwright is. So that's something that would have to be negotiated. There are no standard contracts or guidelines for that? Absolutely not. Um, it's one of those things that you know when it's appropriate and you know when it's not appropriate. <laughs> it's like the, uh, Justice Stewart's definition of obscenity. He knew it when he saw it. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to get onto a, another issue too which is, uh, fascinates me about uh, the director and the choreographer. And Susan, I uh, know, and I think we've gotten a little bit of a, of a handle on some of the things that go over the years into the, as some people say, the mental furniture of, uh, of the director, specifically, all the things. What is the mental furniture of a, of a choreographer? What do you have to know? What did you study? What are the things that influenced you? I know you went to the University of Delaware. And you were a theater major, but were a dancer. But what were the things? What do you? What goes into the the head of a choreographer as well as the feet? Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but I know um, I've always wanted to be a choreographer since I was very small. Since I could spell the word, I wanted to be a choreographer. <laughs> but um, I knew I couldn't just come to New York and take over. I had to come as a song and dance gal first. So I did a lot of theater. And eventually um, switched over. It's hard in the city to have a split focus. You either have to be one thing or the other until you become successful at that one thing, and then you can pretty much spread out and do what you wish. So one day I just stopped wanting to be a performer and, and thought I would try. And uh, luckily, I hooked on, thank goodness, <laughs> but I was able to do a lot of different regional theater and stock. And then actually, I got my break at the Vineyard Theater, <laughs> like Charles and Tony. I did a production of Floor of the Red Menace, and I think I made about $200, mm -hmm. and it's a hole in the wall on the east side, and I thought, no one's going to see this, 
But uh, indeed, everyone saw it. It only holds about 50 people, but those 50 <laughs> people were very important those nights. And that sort of launched me into doing some other things that made me more exposed. But the thing is, for me, uh, dance, and as I said, I can only speak for myself, making up the steps are the very last thing I do when I choreograph. It's the very last thing I do. I have a, a wide knowledge of a lot of different forms of dance and terminology just because I would reach out and latch on to the different forms. So I've maintained that inside of me, but um, collaborating with Robin Wagner on the sets, his sets are very important to my dances. So what one has to do first is sit down and tell the story or the scenario. So I have to sit down and, and think what do I have to get the, a beginning and a middle and end of I've Got Rhythm and how to do that number and how to incorporate the sets and the lights and every time I block out the number tell the story the sets and the lights are in my head also and uh, ultimately once I, I get the story then I work with my dance arranger to make the music tell the story and then I get up on my feet and do the steps so in reality that's the very last thing is one there day. a sheet music in the sense of that you write the dances that the steps and, and the movements so that it will go on and on well I have an assistant that writes down whatever I do I'll stand what up is and that dance called? and a dance assistant no, no, no. no. Notating. Is it my band or Notating dance, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. That will notate things because he would also have to teach that to a swing dancer or an understudy. Mm -hmm. So he then becomes the person that recreates the choreography for me. Um, but since he was there in its conception, he's able to tell the actor what is motivating him to do that dance step. I know with Harry Groner, he would not move unless it was motivated. He's a wonderful actor. And uh, each dance step had to be motivated very strongly for him to understand why he was dancing and what he was doing. And that's what, you really see that in his performance, the strength comes out. Wonderful job. Mm -hmm. Very entertaining. I might add that, that based on what Susan said and, and, and I was alluding to before, that in a musical, which is what is your, of course, always will be, your, your stock and trade as opposed to just straight plays, and, unless you move into straight directing, is that I found that, that that collaboration of all those things she was saying, basing it on Robin, Robin's set, for example. Uh, as a playwright, it requires a lot more um, uh, give and take and a lot more flexibility than in a musical than a straight play, and that was the big revelation to me. Before I mentioned sort of the shall we dance example, but there's so many things happening, and one of them I found is that the actor's tendency to ad lib, which would at first drive me crazy. And every straight play I've ever done, directors have been very strict, as I'm sure you are, and you are when you work with a play and checking it with a writer. And Mike was terrific checking it with, a, with me, but the, there's a tendency in a musical, it's sort of a looser form in a funny sort of way, and it evolves as it's in rehearsal and as it's in preview in a way that a play doesn't really do. A play might, a good director will help you dig deeper into what you're trying to say in the, in, in the, in the, in the show and how best to say it, but even once that's known in a musical, because the choreography, that number may take, tell some of the story that you intended to say in the text, that bit of text will go. And because there's maybe something in this, because the set is changing constantly and the music is telling some of it, and the performances are, 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 are broader in a way in American musical comedy than they are in a straight play, just by definition. The, the, the number of things are happening m makes the playwright have to stand back a little bit more than he does in a play and say, 
all right, let's, let's all do this together. This is not just a play with a song, text, song, dance. It's, it's, it's got to work together and evolve. And it's hard for a playwright to step back and let that happen sometimes. Well, would you talk about the, the evolution in terms of your play, how it, not only in the rehearsal process, but before that, how it got there and how, you know, from, from the room to the, the well, different stages? I wrote it very quickly initially over a week in Mexico on a beach. Um, I tend to write when I'm away from the States for some reason. And uh, it sort of sat, it, I wrote it very quickly, and uh, uh, it was sort of, I think it was quite different. It changed enormously in, in rehearsal. And um, I, don't, I don't really wish I could give a coet answer uh, to the process, because I, I have absolutely no objectivity, and I'm all, I, I was in a fog, and am in a fog throughout. But, um, um, I don't really know how to answer. I'm sorry. It's all right. That's that's an answer. That is an answer. I, I know that, right. that, that what happens is actually you write the play, or I tend to I write the play and and then find the play after having written it. That that the thing that's on the page and on the surface is not quite the play, and I've written around it or above it or beneath it, and and it's only with actors and with the director that the thing itself comes alive, that the organic uh, uh, life of it emerges. So, um, but uh, that's the only access, that's the only idea I have about it. <laughs> Charles, you want to comment? How, how about you? How do you evolve a work? That well, way? I can give you the evolution of uh, one of the all-time greats. Uh, in 1971, I was uh, the third actor fired uh, from a play called Steam Bath by Bruce J. Friedman. Uh, I think they opened with uh, Dick Sean and fired him. And then they replaced him with Rip Torn and fired him. And then... Uh, then they asked me to go in, and um, and then they fired me. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, primarily an actor, uh, and I thought acting was the was the one thing I, I could do. So had you studied acting? I'd studied for ten years, mm -hmm. and I had been on Broadway uh, in two uh, successful shows, and I'd been I'd done about seventy five plays in summer stock, and I'd done quite a lot of television, and uh, I'd even. Uh, had been in the movie, so I and had. Well, I was yeah, an actor, no, no. and it was uh, it was a shock, and uh, I think they've made a uh, a big mistake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it actually, it was written by uh, Bruce J. Friedman, who wrote the short story uh, on which the the first movie that I played a leading role, uh, The Heartbreak Kid, uh, was based on. So the next year, I was uh, playing the leading role in a movie by the same writer who fired me from this off-Broadway show, which really shocked him. Um, but anyway, I was. And, uh, and then Tony Perkins, who was the director of Steam Bath, uh, replaced me, and they opened the play and said the leading role was miscast, and then it didn't run, even though it's a wonderful play. Uh, anyway, after that, I thought uh, I had already written one uh, show in New York. I, I had co-authored an off-Broadway musical called Hooray, It's a Glorious Day and all that that was done at Theater 4 in 1966. We had a, a very successful show. It was selling out. I was, I was also the director of that. And uh, you couldn't get a ticket in previews. And then opening night, uh, due to the uh, infinite wisdom of our producer, a man named Jeff Britton, 
uh, he chose not to have paid the costume woman, so she stole the costumes opening night. And uh, we had a disastrous opening, uh, after which I, I went back into uh, acting. And, uh, which led to this, this performance in Steam Bath. And so now I'm fired, and it's 1971, and I feel I have to take my life into my hands a bit and I and I, I want to write again and uh, I don't know what to write because all I can think about is being fired <laughs> or dream about and uh, and it was although it seems obvious now it, it took me a few months to realize I should write a play about somebody who's afraid he's going to be fired and that turns out to be one of the all-time greats and uh, I sent it to uh, Alan Arkin who was a friend of mine we had done this picture uh, catch 22 together and he uh, he had only done one play at that time, uh, Enter Laughing, and he, he chose to do it, and we put together a cast of Alan Arkin and Renee Taylor and Louise Lasser and Doris Roberts and Will Lee and Sandy Barron and uh, a wonderful company. We did it at Tappan Zee in Nyack for a week, and it was a complete sellout. And then uh, we had three offers to go from this, uh, this summer stock week to, to Broadway. And I thought that was uh, jumping it a little bit. Um, I thought the play needed more, the difference between a week in summer stock and Broadway. At that time, one of the all-time greats was called The Opening, and the entire play was the first act of what we, what we now have. So I, I said uh, I didn't think it was uh, ready to run to Broadway, and, and also I was reluctant because the producer of the play, who was a good friend of mine, I didn't realize at the time if they want to give you 5% of the profits, the people putting up the money, that that's not unusual. I thought they were exploiting him, so I didn't do it. And over the years, I worked on it and, uh, and then put a second act, which I, I think really makes the play a substantial, uh, a substantial play. But it, it has taken 20 years to get this play, 20 years. I, had spent, I once spent seven years getting a movie on that I wrote. But it took 20 years to come up to this production. Did you do any work in those 20 years? I always worked on it. We did a, a dozen readings. No, not on that. On anything else. For yes, I'm a movie actor. <laughs> <laughs> and did you act in the movies doing those 20 years? Yes, I did. I've been acting in the movies for the last 20 years. <laughs> okay. Continuous. Uh, in addition to appearing with Johnny Harrison. <laughs> I also appeared on Broadway in a play called Same Time Next Year with Ellen I was Burstyn. waiting for you to bring yeah. that Well, I was hoping someone else would mention it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough business, and this is what you no, have to you do. I mean, a lunch break, I got a sandwich board on and walked You just plays on Broadway. You wouldn't give us a title. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yes, I worked uh, at other things, and, uh, and, uh, and, and also uh, worked on this play, and then... Uh, the, the vineyard, by the way, and now where Susan worked there was a different venue. It was 50 seats, and now it's, it's a different place on East 15th Street where it's 120 seats. Uh, and uh, that, that's where we are now. But we worked quite a bit, and then, and then we continued to work all through uh, Tony's entrance into it. And, uh, and so the evolution really came from, uh, from a need of, of, of being backed into a corner, and I just said, well, let me try to write something, and mm -hmm. said, that, you know, I'm not going to fire me, so. <laughs> Tony, that, that, we are talking a lot about actors and, and acting, and, and Mark uh, has been a performer, a lot of us have, have been. Um, but Tony, since this is your really first go-around since you said college as a director, do you find, as you are directing, that in your head you are performing it? Mm. 
as you, you go how, how far back do you step or are you realizing it first in your mind as you would do it and then conveying that well somebody came to see the first preview and said they could see me playing each of those roles each of those roles seemed to be doing something that they thought that I did in a way and I never thought of that um, it's very humbling uh, to be the director I uh, years ago worked with a very good director named Joe Hardy who directed uh, play it against Sam which I was in and uh, he would um, he would linger around backstage and he would listen to the show over the PA system he would claim that he could tell more about what was really going wrong or going right by hearing it rather than going out front to see it and he said to me the most important thing you can uh, uh, have is if you're a director is a concept so I lodged that into my head somewhere and when uh, one of the all-time greats came along I said to myself I've got to have a concept so I stared at the wall for a long time and I came up with this concept which was kind of a vague impressionistic view of how this play ought to be and what it ought to uh, consist of and how it should affect the audience not the whole play but to kick it off I had a whole set of ideas I gradually came to learn that you could throw that concept away in spite of the fact that Joe Hardy said it was uh, the thing to do and he's right you have to start somewhere but your concept gets changed because you have to be open to the good ideas that are coming at you from all sorts of other sources from the playwright from the designers from the actors and I guess I'm trying to say the same thing that you said so much more eloquently a little while ago that in a sense it it becomes a thing that lives by itself and uh, you have to have the temperament to, su to, to accept the good ideas that change that concept. And you finally get into the technical rehearsal and they're putting the lights on it. And in my situation, I thought it would have this terribly cold, frightening light and that it would look like a, a cavernous kind of underground prison at the beginning. Well, they built this beautiful set and they put that kind of light on it because that's what I'd asked for. And it looked terrible. And I thought, well, nobody could look at this for more than five minutes. The, the set looks terrible. The actors look terrible. So I threw that whole idea away. I said, put some uh, gels in there and make it warmer and make everybody look good. I mean, that, and that looked nice. I said, that, now we got that. This is our concept. We got this now. <laughs> but you, you sort of have to go with the, you don't know what you're making because it is such a collaboration. And I think temperament has a lot to do with every step of this, especially with dealing with the actors, obviously. And... Um, you know, there are just, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, willingness to, uh, to, uh, to accept other ideas that I think is very essential if you're going to be the director. Uh, the, uh, and picking up a little bit on that, and, and also listening backstage that Joey's to do, um, I wanted to ask Mark and Susan, do you go back to a show once it's open? And, and uh, if you do, does it horrify you, terrify you, <laughs> encourage you, what happens? I hate going back. Yeah. yeah. Only when I read Kazan's autobiography a couple of years ago, I thought, because he said he hated going back, and I thought, finally, there's someone else, because the actors all look at you with opprobrium and, you know, where have you been, and I hate watching it. I hate <laughs> it. I've done my work, they're, they're sailing away, I've been an actor, and I, I was never happier as an actor than when the director got out of the room and finally <laughs> let me alone, and um, I also feel, you know, actors it's it's their responsibility to sort of take off and fly it's it's not like 
and, and, and nor does it require the craft of, of, of choreography by any means, which I think does need to be sort of watched. <laughs> um, but what I, about in long runs? And actors tend to go off on their own and change well, the whole feeling of the playwright and I think the if you, have, if you have a good assistant and a strong stage manager, and, and in, in our case, Robbie loves to go, I think, so, so he sees it and tells me, oh, this is off tonight, or that's better. And, and he has a good relationship with the actors, which is fine with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, um, there's, I, I feel as if I, I would like to direct the show again when I see it, um, because I'm off on something else now, you know? So it's just excruciating to go three or four, five weeks into a run and see they're all doing this thing that really you've gone past, you know, you've... You ultimately hand them the show, yeah, and, yeah, and you, have, you give them the show, mm. and there it is, and there it goes. <laughs> you can't, yeah. Yeah. can't really change anything anymore. And, and sometimes I think what it evolves into is actually a bit theirs. better. Yeah, yeah. It's, it it's, it's becomes theirs. Well, I think the word you use, responsible, they are responsible people, and so therefore yes. they're doing what they yeah. should Very be. often their skills find something that yours can't, oh, right. you know, and it can only be found by playing it. You know, they eliminate all the wrong choices, and finally after two and a half weeks they figure out what the right choice is. You yeah. have to say this line quickly, and you have to say that line loud. But there's no way as the director you can know that in advance. Like once in a while you get lucky and you say, try it that way and it works, and you, you just think <laughs> you, 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 you got lucky. But, but mostly they find it, I think, as they play That's it. True. It's like a cake, I used to say, that you put on the window so you don't taste it right away. It settles, and then it's for tasting. It's the same thing with a play. And an audience will tell them a lot of things that we can't tell them in a rehearsal process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, interestingly, as a contractual matter, the producer will always insist that the director agree to go back and check performances. Yes. Oh, sure. well, you, you do go back. But if there's anything wrong... <laughs> Keep it up, Vicky. Yeah, <laughs> well, we also say that it's subject to the director's availability. Yeah. <laughs> Did he tell you his concept for the play? No, but doesn't he sound like a director? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The guy's never directed anything in his life. <laughs> this concept of looking at a wall, this dungeon, and the dark lights, and the cake, the cake thing, really. <laughs> uh, he just said, I'd love to, and I said, thank God. <laughs> and then it was his. Robbie, how do you choose the director? How does the director choose you? How did this happen? Me? Hmm? Oh. Um, I'd seen some uh, uh, of Mark's work and... Uh, always loved it. And <laughs> relentlessly loved it and... Uh, loved what he knew about me personally. <laughs> Liked the way I dressed. Yeah. Like your concept at all times. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was simply... Uh, it, seemed, uh, it seemed right, actually. Uh, I, you know, we sort of sat... I sat around with Andre Bishop and um, who runs now Lincoln Center and at the time Playwrights Horizons and um, uh, also I you know I didn't know you as an actor I didn't know Mark as an actor but I saw him in Longtime Companion and seemed such an intelligent uh, profound performance that uh, well his work as an actor is so great. Does the playwright usually choose a director? Does the agent put the director and playwright together? How does I've always done You've always this. Did. Yeah, I, I mean, I, except the first time out, Mark, mm -hmm. I didn't do it. The producer will play a role in it, too. The producer will frequently bring people together. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I might just want to quickly inject here, talking about uh, our producer of one of the all-time greats. This is remarkable. This is a, a young fellow. I've never met him before. I just, uh, we just met him here. And it, it's, 
You know, I've, I've been involved in, in a lot of things over the last 30 years. This, this is a man named Doug Abel. He runs the Vineyard Theater, and he's about as smart, if not the smartest producer I've ever met in my life. I'm talking about in terms of the script, in terms of casting, in terms of actors, in terms of anything. He is really smart and was invaluable to both I of us. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, shockingly so. Extraordinary. <laughs> I can't imagine ever being as fortunate as that again unless he happens to be the producer of something else yes, that I am yes. lucky enough Remarkable. to direct. How long has he had the theater? Well, they have the theater. This new venue is uh, two and a half years, they have it. And a lady, a wonderful lady named Barbara Krieger was behind getting the whole theater started uh, from Zeckendorf for a dollar, so that's a story. But, uh, but Doug Abel really is the artistic head of the theater, and, and when he has something to say to Tony and me, we listen very carefully. Absolutely. We're about to go to questions, and, and uh, we're just going to take a very short break. And don't go away, just stand up, stretch, and sit right down again. And there's so much more that we're going to ask you, so I hope you take a deep breath and be prepared for us. Thank you. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're back at the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre, and these seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the playwright and the director and the choreographer, and their roles with each other and for each other. And Jean Dalrymple is our co-moderator and George White along with Jean will continue the questioning and try and elicit as much information as they can for you. Uh, I wanted to actually uh, dig into a bit of intelligence here because there's a, a rumor around that Lend Me a Tenor started in Britain but I think it has a different story than that. We were talking about the evolution of a production. Perhaps you could get into that because I think it's an interesting way about for playwrights and how, how a play makes it to Broadway, and I think Lend Me a Tenor is a particularly interesting story. Well, it had a, it, it had a uh, circuitous, interesting route to, to Broadway. We started out, I had written um, uh, in my early years as a playwright a number of plays, and some of them were done at a theater in New Hampshire called the American Stage Festival, and a uh, wonderful summer theater in the Straw Hat Trail, and uh, I'd had a play called Sullivan Gilbert done there, post-mortem, and then um, I wrote a play called Opera Buffa. Opera Buffa uh, was the original title of Lend Me a Tenor. That's Italian for comic opera. Because um, this play is about a little opera company in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and we put it on there, and we had a wonderful response. And my agents came up to see it um, uh, from William Morris Agency. And, sorry, uh, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All apologies. And, um, but I'm open to offers. No. <laughs> I didn't say that. Talk to you later. Uh, no, I love my agents. Uh, I love my agents if you're watching this. <laughs> he knows. He knows. Uh, so, so and, and others came up to see it, and, and we had wonderful reviews and so on. And we had some offers to take it to New York City, uh, to, to uh, but would it be directly to Broadway or maybe off-Broadway or, or the... Um, Playhouse, uh, the uh, what's it called, uh, the wonderful play on, I want to say Pasadena Playhouse, but the one right outside uh, New York. Santa Monica. 
No, no, I'm talking about the one out here outside New York. Paper mill. Paper mill. It's always started maybe the paper mill. Thank you. And, and so they were great offers, and I was very excited about it. And simultaneously, a director was visiting from England was and um, uh, to talk about directing Sullivan and Gilbert for a major production in the West End. And uh, I met with him, and we talked about it, and I was excited about it. And in passing, the day he's leaving, he said, incidentally, what else have you written lately? Just out of curiosity. And I said, well, wrote this thing called Opera Buffa. Read it, read it. Mm -hmm. So I gave him a copy of it, thinking I'd never hear about it again. He flew back to England, and two days later, he called me up, and he said, I'd like to direct this show in uh, England, and I'd like to show it to some producers here in England, um, if that's all right with you, to one producer in particular. And I was playing very coy and very, uh, I thought, hard to get. And uh, <laughs> so I said, oh, I don't know if you should show it to anybody. I don't want it to look like it's being shopped around. I do have offers in New York, crossing my fingers. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know, um, what's, what's his or her name? And he said, well, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and I said, show it to <laughs> Show it. It's not being shopped around. I don't know. So I showed it to Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, because he had directed Webber's Song and Dance in Australia and they were friends. And uh, two days later, I'm at home. I'm in bed waking up in the morning and the phone rings and it says, hello, this is Andrew Lloyd Webber. You don't know me. Uh, I said, oh, I know you. I know you very well. He said, and I love your play, and I want to put it on in the West End, and I will have it on at the Globe Theater in six months if you give me the rights and you don't take any other offers. I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> uh, and um, it turns out that Andrew, in fact, had produced other plays other than just his own, like uh, 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 the ones we all know, Cats and Phantom and so on. He had in the past produced two other plays that were by, totally independent by different authors. A, play, a straight play and a musical, and um, so I said, absolutely, and um, uh, literally about a month to two months, I guess it was a month later, I was boarding a plane, got off the plane, someone met me, took me to the American Grill at the Savoy, Andrew's waiting for me with a fellow named Richard Stilgo, who wrote the lyrics to, I guess, Starlight and, and Phantom, and we had drinks, and we started talking about the production. And he was true to his word. He knew he had rights to that theater because a play he'd produced was closing uh, after that six months period at the Globe on Shaftesbury Avenue. And uh, Gilmore directed it, and we uh, and we did it in London, and we were a big success. Um, and we got wonderful reviews, and we ran. And, and uh, then the question always becomes: Will a show cross to the United States? Now, interestingly, this show, for those who've seen it, is in a sense people do think it started out in England because it's, the English do farce a great deal more than we do. And though I like to call this a comedy, in fact, it has a lot of farcical trimmings to it. It gets a little crazier and wilder as it goes on. So that um, uh, the question was, how would people perceive it? And when the producer, we were talking just before the break about the role of the producer, the producer involved in America, which was Andrew again, who co-produced it with an American named Martin Starger, um, their view, and this was very much coming, uh, in a sense, an artistic issue in a way, but, but very much from the producer, was we want to make sure that it's understood this is an American play by an American playwright that really started life here. And so the English director, who, uh, who was a terrific fellow and a wonderful director named David Gilmore, as I mentioned, in fact did not get to direct it here. They wanted very much to have an American director. And so they said, who did I want to see directed, and I wanted Jerry Zaks, and we sent it to Jerry, and Jerry wanted to direct it, and 
and then we went to Broadway. There yeah. it was born. There it was, exactly. It's I would like to interrupt for a minute and introduce someone that's been talked about on the panel by uh, both Susan and Mark, a man named Peter Howard. And he's with us today, and I sort of like, if you, the camera can get to Peter, and Peter, could you stand up for a minute and so everybody can see <laughs> Peter Howard. <laughs> and I would ask Susan if you will say what Peter Howard does, very quickly, since he's not on stage. <laughs> well, Peter Howard is very famous in New York City. He's a, a wonderful um, conductor and uh, musician and uh, he for me and for all the choreographers in new york he's a wonderful dance arranger and he did the dance arrangements for me for crazy for you were just magnificent excuse me what does dance arranger mean i was like Good. a dance music arranger excuse me dance Good. music arranger well uh Peter, when we're putting the dances together, for example, in, in Slap That Bass that's in Crazy Few, I said to Peter, I need this music to sound like girls are dragging rope across the stage. And then Peter thinks about that for a minute, and then he starts to play the piano, and darn it, it doesn't sound like that. <laughs> but he, as I envision dance, he envisions music matching the dance. So he himself will leap up from the piano and do a few steps for me every once in a while. Thank you. <laughs> Now, you can go on. Thank you. Right. I, we were talking about, again, uh, of, of uh, the evolution, but uh, I know that the history of theater is also made up of a lot of very, very good agents um, who have shepherded uh, productions through uh, from the very beginning on. Could you talk a little bit about that for us? I mean, because there, there is an evolutionary process which has to be, if you will, shepherded, I think, uh, if, if it's going to evolve. How, how does that work? Well, particularly in the case of a musical, I think, which is so complicated. Um, I have the good fortune to work with a gentleman called Sam Cohn, um, <laughs> who <laughs> is quite remarkable in putting together musicals. Um, what he does is he brings together the people that he represents with people that other people represent. I mean, that, he, one of the things about Sam is that he is adamant about not making it just an ICM package. Um, and he can help bring together a creative team. Um, and what is just as important in the theater, help raise the money. Because as, as, as you all know, it's gotten so desperately expensive um, to do a, a, a musical play today. Um, to have access to, to, to sources of financing is critically important, and that's that's another way in which the agent can participate. No, I think you that's wanted to say something before. You were going to tell me something before. Having nothing to do with the show business. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd better say that to you after the show. <laughs> <laughs> I will be where. I'm not going to press you. <laughs> okay. Well, that's at the back. <laughs> it sure does. I don't know where to go from there. Where to go? Okay. All right. <laughs> Susan, how you been? <laughs> Mark, let's talk a little bit for a moment about dead authors. Uh, <laughs> while you're up, yeah. uh, about uh, about that. You know, again, we, we have uh, the, I think, the myth in this country that uh, uh, it's, Americans can't do Shakespeare anymore, for instance, uh, and that we don't know how to do it, we can't act it, we can't direct it, we have no concept, all of that. Uh, and I know uh, 
seeing having seen your productions uh, and others around that that's simply not true um, and you did talk a little bit about uh, about the dead author becoming very much a person in the room. You want to go a little bit further with just how, how one approaches, how you start with actors uh, in directing a, a, a classic. Part of it is just taking away their fear of, of, the, of the work, and part of it is, um, is letting them understand that, 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 they, that it will only live through them, which sounds sort of like a cliche, but is in fact the truth. That they're, they're only going to, it's like, it's like great ballets. I mean, they only, they, they seem so dead when you think about them, and then you see someone dance them, and they seem absolutely new, minted. And it's the same thing. It's giving the actor a great deal of power, in a sense, and saying, you're going to make this role live again. And then you're going to make the whole idea behind the play, which is, which is often mythic and, and, and elemental, uh, though they may think it's not at first, but you know, once, once that's unlocked for them, then they have the power in doing that play to unlock it for an audience, an audience that is unaware that the play is going to ambush them in, in this uh, rigorous and terrifying way. I mean, uh, it, can be, it can be an extraordinary experience for an actor. And for a director as well, and then for an audience, when you suddenly think, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing an antique, when I'm, you know, especially in this country where, where, you know, the, the, the whole Puritan ethic was founded on words, and so we have this great reverence for, for not only what's new, what we can imagine America to be, you know, all of that, but what is next going to come, but also on, on playwriting, which is why the playwright really is, a, is sort of more in the forefront of American theater than, than the director is, as they are in Europe. Um, also, there's less, there's less interest in, in, in the visual arts um, than there is in, in Europe, simply because Europeans grow up with the visual all around them, religiously and, and architecturally and artistically in every other way, whereas here we're sort of imagining what might be next. Um, and it's getting, it's, getting a, it's getting a group of actors sort of into the frame of mind that they're going to make this play absolutely new. And in fact, it is new, because, I mean, when was the last time you saw, I don't know, The White Devil, which I haven't ever done, but I mean, or, or for that matter, you know, Titus Andronicus, or how many of us have seen more than two or three productions of even the greatest of, of Shakespeare's plays. So they are new for an audience. Once you get the actors to realize that they're doing a new play, then, then you're off and running, in a sense. Yeah. Um, I wanted also uh, f either well uh, for playwrights and directors, but maybe we start with Tony. You mentioned Joe Hardy. Do you did you have or do you have uh, a mentor? Or have had mentors? I told the cast the first day of rehearsals at our play uh, that uh, uh, I wanted to be the kind of director that I always wanted as an actor, and uh, that means something different for different actors because some actors want to be left alone and they don't need to be told anything and the best thing you can do as the director it seems to me is to get out of their way and then there are other actors who want very much to have a lot of input and who want to be told where to, where to go and what, what your ideas are so my purpose was just to try to be flexible and responsive to whatever anybody needed to do um, and sometimes I found myself acting it out for them, which I thought I'd never do. And sometimes I found myself giving a line reading, which is something I thought I'd never do. <laughs> and, uh, but you get to a point where you can only communicate that way. You can't, I say, I give you two choices. Which is better? And I get up and I do it bad, and then I do it good. <laughs> sometimes that's the only way to do it. I, I don't know, there's not much... Uh, 
you know, dogma involved. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing about don't give a line reading, I've always thought was, was completely... Just don't give it to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> On that Just note, I'm going to have to... Of rehearsals, yeah. you know. No, I don't take line reading. <laughs> I hope we can continue this after. So right now, we're going to turn it over to questions. And I know there are quite a bit. And so will you step up and <clears throat> say who you are and who you're... I'm Paul Williams. I'm an actor from Dallas visiting up here for the seminars, and I have a question for Mr. Bates over there, having seen Substance of Fire performed in Dallas recently. <laughs> having had so much success at a young age, have you had any flops so far? <laughs> well, um, I, I have. Um, I tend not to think of them in those terms, though. I, I, I like to, because I, I, I'm, I'm very wary of the whole notion of being categorized successful and failure and it's just it's uh, morbid to me in some way uh, because it's a process uh, the fact is things don't work out uh, most of the time in, in in everyone's life and I tend to learn from that more often than anything that works out beautifully um, so I have yeah thank you hi I'm Mike Altman and I have a question for Charles Grodin and Tony Roberts um, I've directed in college like a certain number of shows and I find it very difficult going from directing back to acting because in my head I'm always going well I could do that better and I can do it this way. Do you have any um, problems in that considering you're on such a greater scale than I am going from being such a, a playwright and a director to, to acting where the control is not as much? No, I, I, I... I think it works for me in a way because when I'm an actor I understand what the director is dealing with and I, I, I really try to be the most supportive actor to the director or to the writer or to the producer. Uh, I think it has helped me understand other people's problems and so I try to, I try to be, create as little issue as I possibly can. Yeah, I would agree. I haven't gone back to acting yet since I directed yeah. this. <laughs> well. <laughs> no, I haven't gone back. Someday. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name's Christine. Uh, that was my question for Mr. Roberts. Which do you prefer, uh, being up front on stage or on film or being behind the scenes, being the director? Well, I, I would first say to you that the, the, the least thing that I like is acting for a camera. Not that I, I'm not grateful to have the opportunity to do it when I'm hired, but I think that's the least fulfilling thing that you can do of anything because there's so much technology between you and the audience that you really feel very removed. You don't know which shot they're going to use, whether they're going to be over your shoulder, that little smile you did you thought was so wonderful got left on the floor. <laughs> so, you know, you're, 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 the, you're the most a pawn when you're in a film or television. Uh, I found about the first three weeks of rehearsals for this play, one of the all-time greats, to be the most productive, creative, exciting time of my life. I would come home at night and I couldn't sit down. I would not eat for 10 hours. I would just race with ideas and energy. And I would I'd be up all night long scribbling and writing, and I couldn't wait to come into work the next day. I'd get there, uh, but I'd come back early from lunch and be angry that the actors weren't there yet. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I ever felt that quite as an actor. And uh, 
I don't know whether that was just luck because it was such a good play and I had such good people to work with, but that's... that's well, that's what that you must have seen in him or sensed in him. Oh, you can so see long. it here. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. He's on fire with the idea of directing. <laughs> and most directors uh, are really, you know, just trying to get away. They, but he's a, he, they're taking advantage of his newness to the profession. After a while, he'll change his phone number. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Dorothy Gannon, and the question is for Ms. Traub. When, um, what's the best piece of advice or the most important thing to know if you're a new director or playwright and you're not used to negotiating or the business? Oh, golly, I guess, I guess the best piece of advice would be to have representation. Uh, seriously, people, people shouldn't, artists shouldn't have to negotiate for themselves. Uh, I mean, obviously, that may be a... It, it can be hard to find an agent when you're just starting out. You can always hire a lawyer. <laughs> they tend to be available if you pay them, and sometimes you can make you know arrangements with them where they don't require too much money up front. But I would say look for representation in making your deals. And I think just to add, if you had if if you had something that needed to be negotiated, you probably could go to an agency and get an agent to help you. Yes, well that's that's true. If 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 you do if you if you've already found your deal. Um, you found your producer and he wants to work with you and the agent doesn't need to sell you, uh, certainly the agent would be glad to negotiate for, you know, for, for, for the normal 10%. Uh, okay, thank, you. thank you. My name is Georgia McGill. I'm a director. The European theater seems to be built around the vision of a director like Peter Hall or Grotowski and acting systems seem to develop off of those visions. Could you talk a little bit to the role of the American director in the theater and in the future of the theater. Mark, maybe that would be because you've seen it. Well, you're always, you know, I mean, when you're doing a new play, you're, you're subservient, in a sense, to the, to the writer in a different way than you're subservient to the writer in, 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 in classic play. In classic play, you're, you're sort of exploiting yourself through the writing with a, with a, uh, with a living playwright on a new play that's, that's finding its legs. You're, it's very much a question of, of support, and there's a great deal of of um, praise in this country, as you undoubtedly know, being a director yourself, or the director who doesn't seem to be there, which I just think is is complete garbage. Um, you know, the, the the greatest thing one can say about Mr. X's direction is that it was, un, you know, not apparent that he directed the play. Well, I can't say what I'd like to say to that. <laughs> um, the fact is that that um, the the actor is the center of the theater, and and the actor needs to have some direction. And in the case of, of, a, of, of a new play, often the, the, the director is working sort of dramaturgically yeah. um, to a certain extent as well, doing some shaping, I was talking about earlier. When you direct, do you like to say, this is it, and block it? Or are you given that space that you talked about before? <coughs> At a reading, how do, you, how do you come to the direction of it? Again, it sort of evolves a bit what the actors feel comfortable with and what you think might be helpful to them, um, what's suggested by the piece. The important thing, I think, is to let the actors feel as if they're creating as much of it as possible. I don't know. I agree with you 100%. I'm not, I don't think that I did that, and I think that's where I would do something different the next time, because I think I came in and started to impose things on them very, uh, at a very early stage, hmm. and I don't think that was productive for, for anybody and for the process. Uh, that's a mistake I made early on. You know, I know how this line has to be said and delivered. 
But some actors role. do like that, as you said. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. They do like it, but I don't know eventually if they end up being better with that yeah. or, or end up organically discovering for themselves what the truth of that yeah. moment is, which yeah. they sometimes can't get back to if you've set them up somehow. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, my name is Barbara Klask Barbara Melman. Klaskin was my other name. <laughs> this is for Ken Ludwig. Um, like most farces, Lend Me a Tenor has lots of doors and lots of entrances and exits. Do you use some kind of a chart or a graph when you plot out a multi-door farce? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the, answer, the, the answer is no, but the answer is no for a reason. It is, it, Crazy for You has some farcical elements. There, we could do a whole seminar here, and maybe you should sometime, on what is a farce. As far as, as, far as I'm concerned, Lend Me a Tenor is really not a farce. I wrote a comedy, and I've always, in the published editions and everywhere, it says, Lend Me a Tenor, a comedy by Ken Ludwig. And there are, far, you know, the, the, the line between farce and broad comedy. Where is it? Is it just is it just more physical humor? Is it because the characters are are less interesting? I don't think so. I hope not. And and, and that goes to really saying that when you get to the physical workings of any comedy, at, crazy for you very much so. There's elements of crazy for your moments in it that people would say, oh, that that's a farce for those five minutes, particularly in the beginning of Act Two. Uh, the first two scenes in Act Two, where there's doubles and so on, and there's really no doors involved, uh, nobody going in and out doors. And farce doesn't depend on that because, I mean, that is comedy doesn't depend on that. Um, uh, uh, it just so happens that in this case, in this play, Lend Me a Tenor, as I was writing it, I thought of this setting where there were two rooms, and the one room was a living room, and one room was a bedroom in a hotel. They had to have doors. I started using them, and they evolved. But the main important point to your answer is that I think when you're writing a play, it's so real to you and you're living it so much moment to moment that the notion, you know, that, that you, you know, you'd never have to graph it because it's so embedded in your brain, just mo where it is moment it's to moment. It's a wonderful explanation for that, really. Thank you. Now. My name is Norm W. Berg. You realize we only have one more minute by that. Uh, Creativity, radical. Radical, can you be radical uh, and creative and transcend your own foundation, which you've spent so long with? Are you, is there a radical theater? I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you because it is only that one I was minute. thinking about Chuck Roden <laughs> Can you answer quickly? I think you have to be radical to pursue uh, a goal in the theater. I think the rest has to come organically from you. I don't associate the word radical with work, but radical with an attitude of overcoming the endless rejection. Where is it? I'm sorry, but we have to interrupt. I'm, I'm doing this all the time, and I, and I feel not both rude, and I also feel that I, I have uh, deprived everybody, including myself, of so much of this wonderful knowledge and this wonderful expertise and, and the willingness to share it with you. And this has been an extraordinary program because of the background of the people, the playwright director, we usually say playwright director, but here we've had it from the view of the actor, from the dancer, and from the playwright and the director, and it's been extraordinary, and they're all gifted, and I'm so pleased at having been able to offer this program. This is American Theatre Wing's seminar on working in the theatre. It is a playwright director 
program and is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on Times Square. Thank you very much for coming.